The Book of Psalms is a collection of prayers, poems, and songs intended to be used in personal and corporate worship. When taken together, they move from lament to praise as they tell the story of the people of God. Through the retelling the story of God's redemption, we learn the language of thanksgiving and confession, lament and joy, shouts of praise and silent reflection. In the Psalms, we learn about and experience the whole sphere of human emotion as we engage with God. We're going to read uh, Psalm chapter 21 together this morning. If you have it, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Now, one quick note. Um, anytime we read through the Psalms, I actually begin with verse 0. So the, the uh, like prescript at the very beginning where it says to the choir master is actually in the original text itself. So it's not labeled as a specific verse, but as we read through the Psalms this summer, pay attention. It'll tell you who it was written. It'll give some kind of address about what it's about. All those, all those kinds of things are, are included in the very top. So Psalm 21, verse 0, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. As you're seated, I'd invite you to once again, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do come before you and exalt and praise you because you are a good God who is slow to anger and abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness towards those who fear you. And so I pray for us today that the meditations of our mind, the words of our mouths, what we feel even in, in our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's psalm actually picks up right from where we left off last year in Psalm 20 to, to talk about and to demonstrate both how to ask for God's provision as well as how to give thanks for God's provision. So you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to read Psalm 20 for us because it's been almost a year since we studied it together. So I'll read Psalm 20 and then just walk through really quickly what that psalm is saying. Psalm 20 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. <clears throat> he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This psalm, as, as well as Psalm 21, are centered around the king. The king for the nation of Israel is meant to serve both as God's representative on earth as well as the people's representative to God. So the nation uses this psalm to cry out for God's protection. They ask for God's abundant provision as well as salvation for the king. Now, in the ancient Near East, this context that that, uh, David is writing these psalms in, wars were not viewed as territorial disputes. They were viewed as fights between the gods. So if one nation was defeated, their god was viewed as inferior or or less than the, the nation they were fighting against. Now, what makes Israel unique among all the other nations is not their size, it's not their wealth, it's not their status as a privileged people. What makes them unique is is their God and their relationship to their God. You can see that in verse 7 of Psalm 21. Psalm 20 then ends pleading for God to save the king when the people cry out, which sets us up perfectly for Psalm 21, where the people move on to give thanks for the Lord's provision. Now, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in these first seven verses because I think that they set the stage for, for honestly, a lot of the book of Psalms. They summarize a lot of the ideas that are encapsulated in this entire book, but we will get to the rest of the psalm. I just want to spend most of our time this morning focusing on these first seven verses, and that tells us that the king trusts the Lord. Now, we need to, in order to understand, and I understand the font is a little bit small, I was trying to get it all on one screen, but we need to do some remedial English work in order to understand what this psalm is talking about. Does anyone know what a pronoun is? A word used to describe an individual. So I, we, me, the third person, first person, second person, all those ideas. Pronouns are all the rage today. But the way we faithfully interpret the psalm is by paying careful attention to the pronouns. Uh, look at how frequently in this, in this first section, the word your, the pronoun your is used. Your salvation, your salvation, you have given him, you meet him, you set, you, you. It's repeated all over, almost ad nauseum in these first seven verses here. So what the point that David is trying to make here as the king is any honor, any recognition, any acclaim that David gets is completely derivative. It's not his own honor. It's not, he's not boasting in himself. He's boasting instead in God. So even the king who serves as the example, the one who's supposed to be the closest to God, the one who's supposed to demonstrate God to the rest of the world is completely dependent on God. Paul actually picks up this idea for us in 1 Corinthians 4.7. He asks two questions. First, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. And then the second question, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If you received it, if God gave it to you, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, a great example of this is is the day I got married. Uh, Kara had, had, uh, fortunately for me, paid off all her student loans three months before we got, or three months before we started dating or something like that. When we got married, what Kara got was all my student loans. I got all her money. (laughs) Worked out very well for me. But if I were to go on boasting about how great it was for me to get all my student loans paid off and not give attribution to Kara for her hard work to get her loans paid off and then start saving money so that we could work on, on getting my loans paid off, everyone would call me crazy. That's the same thing for us who, who make boasts about what God is doing in our lives instead of using it as an opportunity to honor, praise, and give glory to the God who gave it to us. Yet how often do we have a tendency to act as if we are the center of the world? Instead of celebrating your gifts, we celebrate my gifts. 
That we celebrate my talents instead of using them and stewarding those gifts for the good of other people and the glory of God. Now, look at how David responds to God's good gifts. It says, verse 1, the king rejoices, he greatly exults, he has his heart's desires given, he has not withheld the request of his lips, all his prayers are being answered here. In short, what David does is he responds to God's good gifts by giving thanks to God and praising him, and then remembering all the ways that God has provided for him. Keep that idea in mind, this remembering, as we continue working through this text. Because remembering is actually a key theme throughout the Bible. We see in the beginning, in Genesis 8, verse 1, after God had flooded the entire world and Noah was on the ark with his family, it says, God remembered Noah. A little later on, Genesis 19, 29, it says, God remembered Abraham and Lot during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Exodus 2.24, after the nation of Israel had been taken off into bondage and slavery in Egypt, it says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham. Part of the Ten Commandments, Exodus Exodus 20, verse 8, the command to remember the Sabbath day. And then throughout the entire books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have this repeated refrain of remember what God did. It's important that that is repeated over and over throughout the Bible because I'm guessing most of you, like me, have short-term memory loss when it comes to God's provisions in your life. Think of the song, that the old hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount. Verse 2 begins, Here I raise my Ebenezer. That's not referring to Scrooge or Christmas Carol. It's actually referring to a Hebrew word which means the stone of remembrance. So when you read through the Old Testament account, part of what the nation of Israel was regularly commanded to do was build a stone, an altar of remembrance, so that when they come into the land, the promised land that, that God had prepared for them, they could look back at the stone and say, this is how God has provided for us in the past. And because He's provided for us in the past, we can trust that He's going to provide for us in the future. Because if we admit it, we are all such forgetful people. We all would do well to remember, to share, and encourage each other to continue remembering what God has done. As I I shared earlier, Kara and I had the privilege of going out to California for the EFCA National Conference this past week, and I think part of the reason it's important for pastors and churches to go to things like that is, is to remember and be reminded what God has done in and through other ministers of the gospel across the country and honestly across the world. We ran into a friend of ours from Cheyenne who for the past few years has been serving as a missionary in Cameroon. Hearing what God has done in and through them is worth celebrating and rejoicing. And honestly, going to things like this feels more like a family reunion than going to my family reunion. It's a reminder that we as a church, we don't exist in isolation. We exist as something bigger than ourselves. All of us are caught up in this story of the gospel, a story with cosmic implications, but we so frequently forget about that and instead focus on our own little current issues that we're having right here and right now. Now, one of the interesting things uh, Micah talked to me about recently, it talks in here, um, verse 2, you have given him the king, his heart's desire, his heart's desire. Micah was talking to me about something interesting related to our heart's desire because we so often view the heart's desire as more stuff. Like, I I wanted this sweet 67 Stingray Corvette, and I got it because I prayed for it. Or we read the account of David and Solomon, who were rich beyond all measure, and so we should be too. But what's interesting about that idea is as we are sanctified, that is, as we are made more holy, as we are made more like Jesus progressively over our lives, 
our internal desires will become more and more of what God would want, which ultimately is Himself. Look at verse 6. It says, you make Him most blessed forever, for you make Him glad with the joy of your presence. Whatever you need to do to highlight, circle, underline that word presence, do it. (laughs) That is the key to understanding what it is that our hearts should be desiring. What we ultimately should want is God Himself. Uh, think of Psalm 73, one that, that we have recited here before. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart my, my heart my fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, the writer of this psalm, said, There's nothing that I want on earth besides God. Can you say that? Friends, this should even affect the way that we view eternity. I've been contemplating some of these ideas recently. As I shared a few weeks ago, we had two miscarriages over this past year, and and those make you long for heaven in a unique way, where I'll finally get to hold the two children that were taken away from us. But in the midst of that, I need to check my priorities because the real treasure and our real pursuit must be Jesus above all else. If all we see or the only way we view heaven is the place where we'll get more stuff that we want, we need to check our hearts. Because the real joy and treasure of heaven is being as we were truly intended to be. That is in perfect relationship with God and with others. After contemplating the realities of of this, of of God's provision for his life, there's this word, selah. Now, anytime that that pops up in the text, we actually take some time to pause and and do what the selah is. Now, I shared this before, but if you, if you uh, haven't been here, coming here for a little while, Selah, turns out, is uh, actually translated as an extended guitar solo, which is funny until you actually realize and start doing some research on what the word Selah is, and that's actually not too far from, from the truth. So, as I said, this, is, this was a songbook for God's people to use and, and sing and recite together. So, what most scholars believe Selah is, is actually just referring to a musical interlude. Just a time for you to stop and pause and reflect and ponder on the realities of what you just sang together. So often we just, we just recite the words of the songs we're singing instead of stopping and taking time to meditate, and contemplate, and reflect the realities and the implications of, of what we are reading, singing, and reciting together. So I will leave this up on the screen for just a couple minutes. Don't watch the clock because uh, I will keep an eye on it for you. But take some time. Take, take 90 seconds right now to contemplate silently to yourself, meditate, and reflect on the truths of those first two verses that we just read together.
After reciting these truths in these first two verses, let's look at what David goes on to thank God for. There's some specific things that he says. Verse 3 says, You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. This is a way of referring to he has established David as the true king versus any alternative kings. Now, we talked about that last week. We, we saw how Jesus' arrival was predicted during David's reign as the reign was transitioned to Solomon, Solomon instead of any of, of, of the other children that David had. It's a way of saying that David is the true king that God has chosen. Verse 4, he, said, he asked, life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. This is referring back to the Davidic promise that God gave to David, the covenant that, that God made between himself and David. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we know that isn't referring to David or Solomon or any earthly king, any earthly president, any earthly ruler. Last time I checked, and I checked right before I, I came up here, uh, every human still has a 100% mortality rate. Odds are still against someone living forever. Yet God is promising to David over and over repeatedly through the Bible that he will have a lineage that will last forever. Verse 5, he says, uh, this one is really interesting, glory, salvation, splendor, and majesty. These are generally descriptions of God. Yet because they are true of God, they are also true now of the king. Remember we saw at the beginning that that all the authority that the king has is derivative. It comes from God. Yet, because of salvation, because of what Jesus has done, all these descriptions are also true of us now. We have glory, we have salvation, we have splendor and majesty all from God. Over the past uh, few weeks in, in my Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, we've been studying the doctrine of salvation. Most recently, today, we talked about adoption. What does it mean that we are now God's children? And then the implication of that, that, that we are sons with Jesus. Jesus is now our brother. Doesn't that feel weird to like, think and meditate on that reality? The God who is transcendent, completely separate from us, came to earth, the one by whom all things were created, the one through whom everything exists, he's our brother. Or, or what about the doctrine of, of regeneration, where we are made new creatures? We once were dead, but then because of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we are now alive together with Jesus Christ. So these things are true for us because of what God has done in our lives. And then he goes on. How is is this person, how are we supposed to be blessed and glad? Because of God's presence. You make him blessed forevermore. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Now, we need to acknowledge God's presence is everywhere. We believe God is omnipresent. Everywhere, he's present everywhere and all the time. But sometimes we're more aware of it than others. I've shared this story before. I, I, uh, early on in my ministry, I got to go camping in the Rockies with a bunch of other pastors from uh, across the country to talk through our, our unique giftings, our unique calls, the way we could best serve God with the way He has wired us. Um, we were in a, a little bit of a like, valley, a depression in, in uh, the, the Rocky Mountain area. Every night, we would see a, a herd of elk running across the other side of the mountain from us hear them bugling at night. We would, uh, around the campfire, be singing songs together, lifting high as as we see the sun setting over the mountains, the stars coming up on the other side. There's something unique. And and, I mean, you're literally closer to the sky (laughs) when you're in the Rocky Mountains. There's something unique about nature that, that reminds us, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. And so must we. 
I mean, think of the way that God's presence, for those of us who are in Christ, can bring comfort and joy. We'll get there in 10 years, but Psalm 139.7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And then the psalmist goes on. He talks about heaven. He talks about Sheol. He talks about mourning. Go farthest reaches of the sea in the darkness, in the light. God is still there. In fact, God's presence is one of the themes we see even in the first five books of the Bible. You get to Exodus 33 right after the golden calf incident where, where uh, um, Aaron, after Moses had been on the mountain for a long time, takes all the gold of the nation of Israel, throws it into the fire and says, I don't know what happened. Out came this golden calf. And so we decided to go and, and worship it. In response, God gives the people what they think they want. He says, I will go before you. I will clear out the land, the land that I had promised to give you, but I will not go with you. How many of us would jump at that opportunity? You can have all the stuff, all the things, all the worldly acclaim, all the worldly recognition, power, prestige, money that you could ever want, but God will not go with you. That's, what, that's exactly what he promised the nation of Israel, and Moses refused. Moses said, if you're not going to go with us, then, then we're not going to leave. God's presence is what, what, what he needs. Moses actually has the gall to go toe-to-toe and debate with God. If Moses can do that, surely we today can work up enough courage to ask God to be present among us today. Now, I think the crux of this, this uh, psalm is verse 7. And one author actually said, verse 7 summarizes the entire book. It focuses on trust in the Lord and the steadfast love of the Most High. So God's steadfast love towards the king and the king's response in trusting him. Now, Israel was a unique country when it was founded in that they didn't have a king. They were, for the beginning, their origination, a theocracy. That is, they were ruled by God. But God knew that at some point in the future, they would want to be just like all the other nations, so they would ask for a king. So God told them, here's the kind of person you should be looking for when you get to that point where you are wanting a king. What you should look for is someone who commits themselves wholeheartedly to studying and obeying the law of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, which, yep, right here, uh, the second half of, of this section, we'll go through this one in just a minute, but what the king is, the first, king's first job in office is to write down the entire law of the Lord, the first five books. And then they're supposed to bring it and get it approved by a priest to make sure that he didn't make any errors and then use his own translation to read and study and meditate it day after day. What's interesting is we have no account of a king ever doing that. Ever. And, and if you think about what it would do to a person to start to take and write down every word of the Bible, like what, the, what would that do to your psyche, to your mind? You would, you would think, you would focus on, you would learn and study God's Word in a different way than most of us do today. But, but look at what else it describes the king or should be descriptive of the, te- of the king. So Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Three things that are supposed to be descriptive of the king. Uh, Many horses, 
is referring to someone who is building up a huge army because they have the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of angel armies on their side. Why would they build up a, a human army? Not supposed to have many wives because their hearts will be turned away from the worship of the one true God. And it's, it's fascinating looking at some of the ways, even in our culture, um, the way hearts are turned away from the worship of God because of sexual sin. There's God, throughout the scripture actually says there's this, this intimate connection between sexual sin and idolatry that many of us miss today. In addition to that, not amass silver and gold. That is, uh, not be tempted to rely on riches, humanly, earthly riches, instead of trusting on the provision of God. Now, what's heartbreaking is this description that we see in Deuteronomy 17 could be summarized in verse 7 of this psalm. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High shall not be moved. Unfortunately, this description in Deuteronomy, the description in, here in Psalms, is not true of David or his lineage. Now, the word that, that David actually uses here, the king trusts in the Lord, is a, lo- a word that, that, that is rich with, with meaning for us. The, the word he uses has slightly different connotations than the way we tend to use it today. So according to the theological workbook of the Old Testament, which is a dictionary, defines Hebrew words, this word trust expresses the sense of well-being and security, which results from having something or someone in whom to place confidence. Now, when, when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek, they translated this word as hope instead of believe. So we have a tendency to use trust as in, I believe this person is going to do it. But what David is referring to is he's referring to hope in. So it has more of a sense of assurance or the feelings of being safe and secure. The best analogy I can think of this is, is think of driving through a snowstorm in the middle of the night. You're driving down 35, you see all sorts of trucks in the ditch, all sorts of other cars in the ditch as they're getting onto 494, they take it a little too fast and slide off the road onto the other side. That moment where you finally pull into your driveway and walk into your warm house and can finally breathe again, that's the sense communicated by this word trust. It's everything is, is right in this world. I remember growing up and when uh, big blizzards would be coming through, my mom would say, as long as the family is at home, weather can come and do whatever it wants to do. But we, we here are safe and secure. One, one commentator actually said that a better way of translating this word is unconcerned. One who trusts in the Lord is someone who is unconcerned. Can you imagine someone living a life who is unconcerned? Yet that's exactly what God, living as, as a child of God, allows us to do. I think of Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 6. If God clothes the lilies of the field, if God takes care of the birds of the sky, why would we worry? We, as children of God, live life as the unconcerned. Now, the other word that, that connects to this, this trust, this unconcerned life, is steadfast love. Steadfast love. Now, this is, is a key theme throughout the Bible, the word chesed. It is covenant faithfulness. God will always uphold his promises for himself. Now, that word actually is, is a repeated refrain in, in another psalm that you actually have memorized, at least half of it. Psalm 136 is one of my favorite psalms. If you can say, for his steadfast love endures forever, you have half the psalm memorized. We've read it before. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, you say it dozens of times if you read through that psalm. Repetition is is important. Repetition was designed and ordered by God because we need those regular reminders all the time in our lives. 
Now, I had a, a good friend in, in Colorado um, who grew up in the Caribbean, so he grew up in a church that, that was like ordered and structured very differently than, than the way we structured our, our church services. Uh, but one of the things that he often talked about is like, yes, they would repeat the same seven words over and over for 10 to 15 to 20 minutes sometimes, because what he told me is it takes five minutes for him to get to the point where he's actually stopping and pondering and reflecting on meditating the truths that he's actually singing. So the reason that we need repetition is because we are so prone to forget, because we are so prone to, to neglect or marginalize or not want to actually believe and soak in the truths of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. So as we think through it, something like Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. What implications should that have in our lives? Now, we think about this. God's steadfast love does endure forever. We trust in the Lord because of His presence among us. This should cause us to, to, to reflect on whether or not we do thank God for the good things in our lives. If you have a job, a job, not even a good job, a job is worth thanking God for, much less if you have a good job. A healthy salary is something that you can pause and give thanks to God for. If you have good co-workers, people that you get along with, you can stop and give thanks to God for that. We can give thanks to God for the good things that He has provided in our lives. Do you thank God for those things? Now, that's just the first part of this. The next two sections will be much quicker, I promise. But in response to God's provision for the king, the enemies of God are destroyed. Now, God's presence actually has different meaning for those who are opposed to God, those who are not following God, than for those of us who are following God. Uh, think of some of the songs that we sing. Like one of the songs we sing says, open up the heavens, we want to see you. Or in the same song, we, we sing, show us your glory. The only reason that we can boldly say that is because of the atoning work of Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus being our substitute, then we would only be condemned. So when we would ask to, to see God's glory, for God to show himself to us, then we would stand in condemnation. Think of all the stories through the Bible of people who see God, those who were even his messengers, like Isaiah, God's chosen mouthpiece to the nation of Israel. He sees God, he falls on his face and realizes his sinfulness in, in, in front of who God is. Now, there's all sorts of summaries of, of how God handles his enemies, but the short version is they can't stand against him. That's, that's the summary of these, these uh, five verses here. You'll put them to flight. Your hand will find out all your enemies. None of, none of the enemies will be able to stand against God. And, and I think a, a way of summarizing this is, is even seen in Revelation 19. It has a fascinating account of the last battle of all time, the last battle that will ever happen. The enemies of the Lord all assemble together. They draw up the battle lines. They're ready to start fighting against the Lord and His anointed one. And just like that, the war is done <laughs> because Jesus wins. Like, there's no description of a battle taking place. All it says is, Jesus wins. And it says that everyone is slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of the rider. That is his word. <laughs> so just as God created the world with a word, just as God can move mountains with a word, as we saw last week in, in Mark, here we see God can defeat armies with a word. All it takes is God speaking, and, and everyone who is opposed to him is gone. Now, Paul actually picks up this exact same thing and theme and uses some of the exact same language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what it says. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. To be opposed to God 
merits his destruction. That means it is the just penalty for those who are disobedient towards him. Now, it's, it's pretty, pretty trendy today to question any, and doubt the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment, but we need to acknowledge that's how the Bible, which is God's revealed word, speaks of the punishment of those who are opposed to him. Many of us today have a, a misunderstanding of love, which we just define as acceptance, which means we also have a misunderstanding of judgment. I was, even this past week, talking to a, a fellow pastor who uh, went to seminary with a friend who has become an annihilationist, who believes at some point you, you, will, uh, you will face suffering for a season, and then you will just cease to exist. And, and honestly, I wish I could believe in that. I do. Like, philosophically, emotionally, mentally, it, it seems to make more sense in a lot of cases, but I'm bound by what Scripture says. I'm not bound by what I wish to be true. Now, I don't have time to go further into that. I'm already over my time limit. But if you want more information about that, feel free to email me. Um, I'm hoping and planning to do a sermon on this, this idea and doctrine of hell sometime in the new year. Uh, but we've got a few months before we get there. And thankfully, this isn't where David ends, ends this psalm. So the last thing we see is a reminder for us as God's people. So in response to God's, God's uh, provision of the king, the way his enemies are destroyed, God's people in response praise him. Like that is, should be the proper response for all of us. If we see God's provision, salvation in our lives, our response should be singing and praising. Now, singing is, is a lot more than just music. Singing actually changes us, and we often don't even realize it. Singing brought down the walls of, of a jail for the Apostle Paul. If you read the creation accounts in, in Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, it is created by singing. And at times, for, for me as a Christian, the only thing I have are the words that we together have sung. I can't tell you how many times in my life, in times of crisis, in times of difficulty, in times of doubt, where music has been the balm to my soul to remind me of the truths that I come up here and proclaim to you week after week. And most of the time, it actually comes through the mouth of a brother or a sister. Uh, think of what we are commanded to do in Ephesians 5.19. We're commanded to address one another through our singing. So part of the job of us gathering together to sing is so that we can encourage our brothers and sisters who are standing next to us. Now, I've, I've shared this quote before, but I think it bears reminding or repeating in this section once again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. Now, I'll stop there for just a second because God cares about words. Again, God used words to speak the earth into existence. God used words, uses words today to transform us and make us more of what he has called and created us to be. But we need to be speaking those words to each other. I mean, another way you could think of this is God uses words to both create and recreate in people's lives. We, therefore, need to be people who are speaking the word. Back to what Bonhoeffer says. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. Now, this is both anti-individualism that we have so often in our context today of people who view salvation only through an individual lens. If, as long as I am saved, as long as I am going to heaven, then I don't care what happens to those around me. But we also need to realize that we are not sufficient in and of our own strength, in and of our own power, to cling to and hold fast to the words that God has given to us. 
Because all of us are liars first and foremost to ourselves. Think of how often, often you sin, and, and many of us struggle with the same sins over all of our lives. As soon as you fall, find yourself falling into that sin again, you make a promise with yourself that I will never do that again, only for it to happen again and again in the future. This is where we need other people to speak truth into our lives, to remind us and encourage us and strengthen us, even when we are tired and exhausted. So finishing the quote, he needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. What I want us to think through as we come to the end of this is do you speak God's word to others? Do you soak in? Do you meditate? Do you memorize and reflect and then use that as an opportunity to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you? Because I can guarantee if, if you have not wrestled or struggled or had some difficulty in your life, just wait. It's going to come at some point. And what are you going to do? What are you going to cling to? What are you going to hold to in the midst of, of whatever it is that is going on in, in, in your life around you? Uh, Micah has in his office a, a quote from um, Charles Spurgeon that is one of the most beautiful quotes uh, that I've ever read. He says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So waves, difficulties, turmoils, whatever life throws at you, but if it brings us back to the truths of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us through his word, then, then it's worth walking through whatever suffering and difficulty that the world brings our way. Because then we can cling to Jesus in the midst of those storms. And, and some of that comes by clinging and, and having the encouragement of our brothers and sisters sitting there by us. Uh, Barb, I see you sitting there. I think of a year ago, some of what you were walking through and you telling me every morning you would get a text of some passage of scripture that someone else was reading and you could encourage each other through God's word and, and the reminder to continue persevering whatever difficulties were coming. Are you texting John now every morning when he wakes up? No, Barb. <laughs> uh, John just had knee replacement. He's probably at home watching this right now. So John, hello. Let's see if I get a text from him in a minute here. But we all need those regular reminders. It's a joy. Like you guys don't all get to hear or see some of those things, but what are you doing to look for those opportunities to speak God's word to each other? One of the ways we can do that is through our singing. And, and this is why we need to gather together. We cannot exist in isolation. Our faith is not lived out in isolation. God has called us into a family that he has brought together. God saves us as his people. And in response, as we see in the last verse here, we will sing and praise your power. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the way that you continue providing for us above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. We thank you for even looking around this room, the multiple ways that you have worked in, in our body's life to heal us, to bring salvation, to bring growth, to bring maturation and, and, and conviction of what it means to faithfully follow after you in our daily lives. Pray that we as your people, we as your body here in this church would continue looking for ways to speak God's word to each other. I pray that as we continue studying these, this inspired hymnal together, that we would remember to reflect and respond to you as you revealed yourself to us. God, I thank you for the brothers and sisters around here who can continue encouraging each other to become more and more like you. Pray that as we sing right now, that your words would dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another through our singing. May you be honored and glorified here today. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.